I'm pretty sure uh, most of us know who Mark Twain is. I say the name Mark Twain. I'm sure most of you know who that is. Author, famous author, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Adventures of Tom Sawyer. What you may not know about Mark Twain is that he was very much a cynic of Christianity and religion in general for much of his life. And yet he was also very curious about Jesus. And so uh, he was known to take many trips to the Holy Land, get a better idea of who Jesus was, the territory that he walked, the people that he was uh, speaking to and around, and the culture in which he lived. And so on one such occasion, he went to the Holy Land over in Israel, and he stayed on, uh, on the Sea of Galilee in a place called Tiberias, which is right on the sea. And he uh, was staying with his wife, went with his wife, and so late one evening he decided that he would take her, ask her if she wanted to go on a romantic walk together. And so he said, well, hey, do you, you know, want to go on a walk on the Sea of Galilee, you know, romantic uh, time together? And she said, sure. And so they went out on a walk. It was just this beautiful night, the moon shining, reflecting off the waters, just a nice cool breeze coming off the waters. And so they're walking and they're talking and they're enjoying their evening. And so they walk up and they see that there's a boat on, on the shore, uh, right next to the shore that's meant for tourism there's signs and uh you know telling them they'll take them out onto the sea of galilee and so uh twain turned to his wife and said how about we go for a boat ride and she said well i'd love to and so he walked up to the man and asked him how much does it cost for you know the two of us to go out on a boat out on the sea of galilee and the man took one look at twain who was dressed in his customary garb that you've probably seen him in white suit cowboy hat white shoes Man looked Twain over and assumed that he had some money, and so he said, for you and your wife, $25. Now, that was a lot of money back then. That doesn't seem like much to us maybe today, but that was a lot of money back in the late 1800s. And so Twain said to the man, thank you, but no thank you. And then he turned around, took his wife by the arm, and as they started walking away, he said to his wife, with boat rides that expensive, I can see why Jesus walked on the water. So uh, I love that story. And if you remember last week, we, uh, we talked about the story of Jesus walking on the water. We're continuing in our series that we've been in for the last several weeks, Faith and Doubt. And in this series, we've been tackling the dynamic between those two things. So how, do we, how do we make sense of that? And, and talking about doubt, because it's important, I think, for us to, to talk about doubt and how that relates to our faith. Because we all go through times of uncertainty and doubt. And maybe we question in big ways, maybe we question in small ways, but I hope this is a space and a, and a community where we can talk about those things and be able to, to share those things and where we are and where we've been and to hopefully grow as we grow in our faith and as we grow in our relationships with each other. And that's a lot of what we've been talking about in this series so far. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to the lessons that we've uh, shared so far in this series as they, they kind of build on each other. And so last week, as I said, we talked about a very well-known story, a story that's found in three of the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. It is the story of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, last week, we looked at John's account of that story and the aspect, kind of more focused on the aspect of, of Jesus coming to the disciples, because the other aspect of the story is what we're going to talk about today and on into next week, and that is Peter walking on the water. Uh, but I, I thought it was appropriate and, and important for us to talk about the other aspect, which is Jesus walking on the water, because there's a lot of things that we can garner from that lesson and what he wants to teach us and what he was trying to teach them. Uh, but again, this week I want to return to that same story and look at it, not from John's perspective this time uh, and Jesus walking, but from the perspective of Matthew and Peter walking on the water, or at least attempting to. We'll talk about 
the other aspect of that next week. But for this week, we're going to talk about Peter walking on the water. So, John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 14. If you want to turn with me there, you can follow up on the screen. We're going to be starting in verse 22 and read down to verse 29. Matthew 14, 22 through 29. Here's what Matthew writes. He says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. If you were with us last week, some of this story may sound familiar uh, until we get to the part. Uh, it may still sound familiar because you've heard the story, but uh, very similar to John's account in many ways. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. We'll talk about the rest of the story next week. And this story is, there's a lot in this story that we could talk about. A lot of things that we could digest. Not the least of which is Peter's fate or lack thereof and the amount of that. And we'll, again, talk more about that uh, next week. But I find it interesting. One of the ironic things about this story, just from a very practical standpoint, is that Peter's name, if you're familiar with Peter's name, Peter's name in the Greek uh, means rock or stone. And I find it interesting that a guy with the name rock or stone is able to float or walk on the water. Stones and rocks don't typically walk on water. And of all people, for it to be Peter, whose name means rock or stone, to yet walk on the water, float on the water because of his faith in Jesus. And now we all know the end of the story. Most of us probably know the end of the story. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. We're Peter develops that sinking feeling, and he does sink like a rock, the rock that he is. But again, we'll talk more about that next week. Because for the time being, I do want to focus on the good part, that Peter actually does walk on the water, and how amazing that is. That someone, Jesus we get, right? Jesus walking on the water, that makes sense. But Peter, and remember, as we talked about last week, this isn't some placid, calm, serene scene that we typically picture in our minds. And maybe we have this picture of Jesus and there's a few waves, but it's typically rather docile. And so Jesus is just kind of walking on that. No, this is a rough storm. Same storm with the same winds that kept the disciples out on the water all night long. That's the storm that Jesus is walking into and through on top of the water to get to them. And it's the same storm that Peter is walking into and through to get to Jesus. And I think there's at least a few things that we can learn from Peter's water-walking faith, if you will, uh, and I want to share them with you this morning. The first is this, that water-walking faith takes Jesus at his word. Water-walking faith takes Jesus at his word. Have you ever thought, about, you just read some of these stories that we're so familiar with, sometimes we lose the Minutia, we, 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 and it's good to see the bigger picture, but sometimes we, we miss some of the details of it because we've heard it so many times. But have you ever thought about Peter's request here of Jesus when he asks him about going out on the water? Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me or command me to come to you on the water. Doesn't that seem like a weird way to ask something of someone? Like when you just ask, hey, can I come out on the water to you? 
Yeah, uh, you know. No, Peter says, command me, tell me to come out onto the water to you. When's the last time your child walked up to you and said something like, well, mom, tell me to go get a, a, a big bowl of ice cream. Mom, tell me to go do that. Dad, dad, tell me to go turn on the TV and watch it for like the rest of the afternoon. Tell me, tell me to go do that. I've never said to my wife, honey, tell me to go play golf. Please tell me to go play golf. Just seems like a strange way to ask for permission or, or, or to, to broach that subject and, and, and how we ask Jesus and the quest that he makes. And so it got me thinking, well, why would Peter put it that way? Why would he say it the way that he does? And I certainly don't know all the reasons, but perhaps part of it, at least, is because Peter already had experience dealing with Jesus. He knew the power that came with Jesus and the words that Jesus spoke. And, and when he knew that what Jesus commanded him to do, there is authority and empowerment to do that. And so once Jesus gives the empowerment to do it, Peter can simply step into that, no pun intended. Peter had already learned that there is authority and power in simply the words of Jesus. And that really shouldn't come as a surprise because you read Scripture and all of the universe and all of created reality came into being by the spoken word of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And not only is everything uh, created by His Word and at His command, but also everything is continually sustained by His Word. I love what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, which is a beautiful passage in and of itself. But this is what the sun does. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. And I've always loved, and you've probably heard this description before in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, how the Hebrew writer talks about that when, when it speaks of the Word of God being alive, and active, that this is not some, you know, dead thing that we read, but there is, there is life and truth that are contained within these words, not because there's anything special about the binding or the pages, but because they are the literal words of God. There's life, there's transformation. And throughout Scripture, you see this, this continually, these descriptions of, of the authoritative, living, active word of God. Earlier in Matthew chapter 8, and we find this story in all the Gospels. Uh, we read that Jesus calms the wind and He calms the waves of one storm simply by speaking. Simply by speaking. Other places in Gospels, we read of Him of uh, healing people simply by saying the words. There's one story actually also in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus doesn't even have to go to the town. He doesn't have to go to the town as that person. He just has to say the word and that person is healed. All throughout Scripture, there is this incredible, incredible witness to the authority and the power of the spoken word from the mouth of God and Jesus. And we know that, and yet even having said that, there's still so much that we just can't even wrap our minds around and comprehend when it comes to the power that is inherent in the word of God. Not just, I'm talking about this word of God, but in God's word, the words that come out of his mouth and the truth and life that are contained therein. But the point is that Peter had been with Jesus long enough to know that when Jesus said something, when he commanded something to be done, that he also empowered that. He also gave the empowerment to be able to carry that out and to do that command. And that's still true today. That's no less true today than it was for Peter walking on the water. Now you say, I might not be able to walk on the water, and I probably wouldn't advise that, right? But there's power to be had in the name of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the power that comes through his word. And I think about this in terms of some of the things that the Bible talks about. You know, there's some things in here 
that make perfect sense and you read it and you do it and it, it just works, right? And then there's other things that you start dissecting what God's Word says and it's tough, right? I, I don't have to tell you, it's tough to live some of that stuff out. And it's getting harder and harder sometimes in our society and in our culture to live that out and to live out the truths that God's Word contains and the life that He calls us to live. And it's like, how do we, how do we wrap our minds around? There's some things that are easy, right? I always say being here is the easiest thing that we do. It's living it out that is the hardest thing we do. And it's like, how, how do I live the way God has called me to live? It's almost as if sometimes he's calling us to walk on water. And by the way, what seems possible or impossible for you might be easy for me and vice versa because we each deal with different things and struggle with different things. And for every time that we sit in the back of the boat holding on for dear life, saying there's no way I can change, there's no way I can walk on water, there's no way I can do this, there's no way I can do that, the whole time Jesus, the way, is walking on the water, beckoning us to call and come to Him. I love what author Oswald Chambers once said. It's so convicting. I've just been playing this in my mind. He said, beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in Him as the Savior of the world. So we do that, right, already. Jesus is Lord. Done that already this morning. Beware of doing that while at the same time you blaspheme Him by the complete evidence in your daily life that He is powerless to do anything through you. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. That is so convicting. That, that how much do we praise Jesus and we talk about the power that God desires to work in our lives and in others and yet we leave Him powerless to truly make a difference in our lives by the way that we live. And for Peter, he knew that what Jesus told him to do, he also would empower him to do. Here's the second thing I think that this story reveals to us about water walking faith. And that is that it wants to be where Jesus is. And I know that seems obvious, right? But... I think it's not as easy to do as what we make it out to be. I mean, picture yourself in a boat in the middle of a storm. How many of you are taking that step out onto the water? Right? I know many of us have read this story multiple times and, and, and we've heard it in different things and, and, and again, very familiar with this story. But another thing that just kind of stands out to me is you ever thought about what in the world gave Peter the idea to come out to and walk to Jesus on the water? Like, I mean, we read this story in hindsight, and we're like, yeah, of course. I, why wouldn't he? But wouldn't it be stunning enough just to watch somebody walk on the water? I mean, like, that in and of itself would have been so stinking cool. Jesus is walking on the water in the midst of the waves and the wind and the storm. What made him want to walk on the water himself? I mean, the rest of the guys, they're all hanging on for dear life in the boat, and yet Peter... Either he has the faith or he just has the guts or the lack of brains sometimes, which you could probably say about Peter and many of us, myself included sometimes. But he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. What in the world made him make a request like that? And I don't know the full reasoning, but I can't help but think if it's just very practically as saying he just wanted to be where Jesus was. Do we want to be where Jesus is? Is that our highest goal? Is that our highest priority? Because you see, Jesus never turned anybody away who wanted to be where he was. To be close to him. 
And the truth is that Jesus came so that you and I could have that very opportunity to do just that. You know, there's, there's some discussion um, about what the sea and the water means in Jewish culture. Water and sea mean some different things, but the sea in particular, there's some layered meanings to, to that in, in Jewish thought. And, and so if you remember, Jesus is Jewish. Uh, the disciples are Jewish. Matthew, who's writing this gospel, is Jewish. The people that are reading this gospel initially are Jewish. Everybody's Jewish in the story. And for the Jews, the sea was often seen, the sea itself was often seen as something, I don't want to, negative is probably a strong word, but it wasn't necessarily positive. Um, in fact, many in Jesus' day, many Jews feared large bodies, of, large bodies of water. So they'd go out into the water, but you wouldn't see fishermen usually go into the middle of uh, the Sea of Galilee. They often referred to the sea in Jewish writings as, as an abyss and saw it as a symbol of chaos and even evil at times. In fact, you read in Revelation, and one of the evil beasts comes out of the water, out of the sea. In Revelation chapter 17, the great prostitute of Babylon is described as one who sits by many waters. And so for the Jews, in many ways, the sea represented evil and untamed chaos. And then you think about how that relates to what Jesus does here. And so what's incredible about this story is, is twofold to me. Jesus comes walking out on the water, out on the sea, and in doing so, exhibiting in many ways his authority over the water and over nature, but even bigger than that, over, over sin, over chaos, over evil, over all of those things that, that are uncertainties. And not only that, but Peter also walks on the water. Not just Jesus, but Peter walks on the water on top of those things. It's not just Jesus who's walking on top of and exhibiting his authority, but it's also Peter, not his authority, but by virtue of his relationship with Jesus, who steps into that authority and himself begins to walk on top of the sea. And I, I just can't help but think that is such a beautiful and powerful picture of what it means to be a disciple. Because, and here's the third thing I think we learned from this story, that to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, is not just to be where he is, but it's to become as he is. Water walking faith means becoming like Jesus. And Jesus would drop these hints all along the way in his teaching. Like in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says, A student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Well, what's Peter doing? He's being like Jesus. He's coming to Jesus and following in Jesus' footsteps. In John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Jesus has every intention of reproducing himself in those who place their faith in him. And a disciple, you say, well, what's a disciple of Jesus? Well, there's a lot of aspects to it. But when you start to nail it down, a disciple of Jesus is basically someone whose primary goal is to live their life the way Jesus would if he were in their body. And here's the cool thing. Jesus is in your body. If you're a Christian, he is in you by his spirit because he wants to be where he, he wants us to be where he is and to become as he is. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, and we, or verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory 
are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, like, it's a kind of a, a little bit of a confusing passage, but in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about this idea of, he talks about the first Adam and he talks about the second Adam. Now, we know who the first Adam is, right? Because Adam is his name. He was there in the beginning. He's in the garden. And he kind of got lost at sea, if you will. He got swept up by the waves of sin and fallenness. And so entered the second Adam. And he comes in walking on top of the evil and the sin and the chaos. And he offers to each of us the opportunity to become like him. And to be conformed to his image. And when it comes to evil and sin and impurity, we all have our own storms and seas and waves and waters. And yet we're called to walk on top of those waters. Just as Jesus did. By his authority and through his power. He wants us to learn how to walk on top of what it is that far too often we seek under. Because Jesus wants us to be where he is. And to become as he is. And before you say, well, I, could, I just cannot do that. I, I, like, there's no way. I mean, I, do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? Remember, the one who commands is also the one who empowers. I started off with a story about Mark Twain, who many of you probably know. Most of you know, unless you're really young. Let me give you a story about someone you may not know. That's a guy by the name of Billy Moore. Billy Moore grew up in poverty, abject poverty, and in a family full of alcoholics. By the age of 22, he wound up shooting a man for $5,000 because he was strapped for cash and subsequently got put on death row and sentenced to die. While he was on death row, two men from a local church who ran a prison ministry came onto death row to tell others there about Jesus. Billy Moore was one of those. He'd never heard the story of Jesus truly conveyed to him and the difference it could make in his life. But when he heard it that day, it made a difference. And it captivated him. And on that day, he said yes to Jesus' free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And he was promptly baptized in a small tub that they was used for prison trustees or by prison trustees. From that point forward, a guy on death row, Billy would never be the same. In fact, for 16 years on death row, he was like a missionary among the other inmates. He led Bible studies. He conducted prayer sessions. He counseled prisoners and introduced many of them to Jesus. Some churches actually sent people to death row to be counseled by Billy Moore. That's the impact he was making. He became known as the peacemaker because his cell block, largely populated by inmates who had themselves become Christians through his influence, was always the safest and quietest and the most orderly. Eventually, Billy's life changed. Not only got the attention of the inmates that he was around, but also got the attention of the family whose man, or, or, or the man whose life he took. He had written them a letter asking for forgiveness, saying, if you can find it in your heart to forgive me, I, I would appreciate it. But if not, I understand. Because if I were you, I wouldn't do it either. The family actually wrote Billy back saying that they had forgiven him. They were a Christian family. Eventually, they developed a bond and a relationship. They began writing back and forth and developing that relationship even more. In fact, they became so close that the family whose man of the life he, the family of the man whose life he took, began letters, began writing letters to the, the prison to have his sentence commuted. 
That's how much of an impact he began to make on their lives and on those around him. And eventually, after 16 years on death row, Billy Moore was released on parole. He then went on to become a minister and travel the country telling everybody he could about the truly amazing grace that he had received. All because of the transforming and life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And I tell you that story to say that's the same power that allowed a man by the name of Rock to walk on top of water. And that's the same power that is available to you and me today. And I don't know if that looks like walking on water, or if that just looks like getting out of bed in the morning. But that same power is available to you and me today. Of course, the old saying goes, if you want to walk on water, you've got to do what? Get out of the boat, right? Well, what do you say we get our feet wet starting today?